Anti-black racism is profoundly destructive and shockingly pervasive too. It's more than just a barrier to decent work. It steals people's rights, the rights that are the foundation of a decent life. It's no secret, I'm a woman of color, but I'm not black. Unfortunately, racism and discrimination are not unfamiliar experiences to me. Anti-black racism, however, is the worst. The evidence is undeniable. It has tragic and life-robbing consequences. For years, I've done my best to work in solidarity with my black friends and coworkers to expose, uproot, and end anti-black racism wherever it has taken hold. There is no end to this work in sight for anyone. We know more equitable systems and structures are possible. We can see signs of progress, especially where people have created their own space to go deeper, speak unfiltered about the experience of being black and get organized for urgent change. In this episode, we talk about what it's like to get a foothold in the world of work as a black person, getting educated, getting hired, and actually working while black over a lifetime. I'm Asma Malik with the Atkinson Foundation. This is Lovers and Fighters, the second podcast series on Atkinson's Just Work It platform for podcasts and events for and by millennial workers. Here we meet people wrestling to hold the line between heart and grit in today's decent work movement. What do workers, especially millennial workers, love enough to fight for? We invite conversations across generations, within sectors, and more to understand and be inspired by the motivations and questions driving their work. I'm speaking with Rodena Bahabeshi and Kofi Hope. Rodena works in philanthropy and has recently invited black women to share their experiences in the nonprofit sector. Kofi founded the C Center for Young Black Professionals and has worked for years to support black youth success. Both of them are leaders in a growing community that is fighting for equity and accessibility at work. Together, they're taking down racial barriers and in the process, making work decent for everyone. Here's our conversation. So welcome to you both. Um, I want to start by asking you to tell me your full name, uh, your title, and uh, who you work with. And I'm going to start with you, Rodena. Sure. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Rodena Bahabeshi. I am the Manager of Stakeholder Engagement and Communications at InSpirit Foundation. I work with uh, primarily young change leaders. So those are individuals we refer to who are 18 to 34, who do important work to advance inclusion and equity, and who have lived experience of the issues they're addressing. We also work a lot with people who are doing media and arts work, and also uh, people who um, we can support through impact investing. Very cool. How about you, Kofi? Yeah, so my name is Kofi Hope. I'm executive director for the CEE Center for Young Black Professionals. And that's an organization that does comprehensive kind of career and employment development programs. And we focus on working with young black men and women who are, as they say, farthest from the shore in regards to the labor market. So folks who are facing real compounding barriers, so such as conflict with the law or homelessness, substance abuse, trauma, etc. And usually people who have a few of those barriers that they're navigating at the same time. 
I'm going to start with a question that's really core to our podcast series about, you know, uh, what we love enough to fight for. And Redena, you've recently been calling in black women from the nonprofit world to come together to talk about their experiences in the sector. And Kofi, since we were student activists together and now in your professional life, you've dedicated your work to creating black youth success. So I want to ask each of you first, how would you describe what you're fighting for? Let's start with you, Kofi. Yeah, so I think it's it's fighting for a world where social justice and equity is a reality for everyone and a place where, you know, regardless of where you're born by kind of the coincidence of birth or the coincidence of the genetic pool, what abilities you're born with, you have a chance to live a life of dignity, a life of flourishing with family, with friends, with a caring community around you. And so to me, you know, fighting for black youth and their rights is just simply part of that larger human struggle to build an equitable world for everyone. How about you, Rodeo? So I've worked in the nonprofit sector for the vast majority of my career, or I suppose all of it. And I've always been really curious about who gets to participate in decision making, who gets to uh, sort of determine the vision for the work we get to do. And of course, that's really critical to the outcomes of our work, because so often those communities aren't the centralized stakeholders who also get to you know, point to the ways we should be doing the work that we do. I suppose my work has always come from a place of the question of who are we listening to and not like who are we giving voice to or who are we you hear a lot about sort of the giving a voice to the voiceless and it's really not about that people have their own voices and it's really about who we choose to engage with and who we choose to listen to so that's always where i think the the love of this work has come from that question and is there a a personal experience or something that you uh went through that kind of crystallized that love yeah i would say i'm certainly shaped by um you know the personal experiences i've had growing up in you know precarious housing and social housing um experiencing poverty and really seeing ways in which so many members of my community I think are amongst the hardest working individuals I'll ever meet, but there are just some possibilities that they can't access and it's like, why? So really trying to center my work on figuring out how we create more space for people who know what the solutions are to the community challenges, because the reality is there's so many individuals who are doing critically important work who just aren't being given adequate space. And how about you, Kofi? How did you come to love what you're fighting for enough to fight for it. Yeah, I think there's two parts. I mean, one is at the level of um, spirituality or faith, but I think especially when I was a teenager and moving to Mississauga and being involved in community outreach programming, seeing folks who were facing systemic barriers, even by the time I was at U of T as an undergrad student, some of the young people that I'd been involved in mentoring and coaching through some of the outreach work I was doing were ending up arrested, sent to jail for murder, um, just in really dark and dangerous places. And that became a journey for me to realize that I've had a lot of privilege in life. A lot of opportunities were there. And a lot of things just through random chance doors have opened for me. And as a opposed to falling into shame or guilt about that or just ignoring it. For me, it was saying, well, this is the place I've been given. How do I use that place to create opportunities for others? How do I use that privilege and that social power I'm gaining, especially being at the, you know, quote unquote, best university in Canada? How do I use that as an opportunity to open up these doors and create new access for those who are on the outside? 
that kind of brings us to the work that you're doing now. And you led your organization, See Toronto, toward an explicit focus on black youth and their position in the economy, and now holding some of the most dynamic space in Toronto for black youth to succeed. Can you tell us how you did that? I was looking for a job and got approached by some folks through the United Way, and they said, we have this multi-million dollar project, hasn't worked out the way we wanted it to, and we know we want it to work around black youth and somewhere within the economy, but we're not sure where it's going to go from here, and would you be willing to take a crack at it? And I said, yeah, sure, that sounds easy and would be fun. And it turned out, especially the first couple of years, to be incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging. We spoke to 100 young black men and women across the priority neighborhoods from folks in, you know, Somali leadership groups to folks who'd just been released from incarceration to everyone kind of in between. Originally, the project was supposed to be about social enterprise. And you said, that doesn't make sense to us. We don't want to become social entrepreneurs. We need jobs. We don't understand the world of business or professional careers. We don't feel we get a lot of support from our own communities. And we feel a lot of the programs for us are BS, don't give access actual results, just pay middle class people to come work here. And we're usually told either go to school and get debt or work and don't get skills and don't move ahead. And we want something that allows us to tangibly make money while building our skills and moving ourselves forward. And through those ideas and what we learned in community, we built C. We started with an entrepreneurship program, then we did an employment program. And then we started merging them together and saying, what we need to do is career programming. We need to talk to people about the different options they have, give them real concrete skills, and a foot in the door to start working in their sector. We made it the C-Center for Young Black Professionals, in part because we didn't want a name that was going to stigmatize folks in it. Right? Who wants to go for a job and you say, oh, I did this training course at the Needy Black Youth Program. Like, that really doesn't help you to move forward. That just further stigmatizes you. You know, what stands up for us is the individual stories of change. You know, people entering the program who've never worked a job in their life, who are able to now, you know, are the first one to get hired and on the way to a career. People who children's services had, you know, separated them from their children, who are able to actually bring their kids back home. Think of a young man who came into our program, was struggling with all kinds of issues, was afraid of heights in our trades program. Now he's working on the CN Tower, doing maintenance on the side of it. That's the stuff that inspires us. That's the, those are the successes. That's powerful change, and that's movement building and, and solidarity that can be so transformative. And, and one of the preoccupations that we have here at the Atkinson Foundation is around decent work, right? And that creating the conditions supporting to the, the movements, strengthening the movements for decent work. And I'd love for you both to talk about how you see your uh, work, your efforts, the things that you love enough to fight for connected to the broader decent work movement. Um, so I think we need to ask a lot of questions about, you know, who gets to, who got to amass wealth and how we, you know, achieve equity through what was fundamentally an inequitable system, right? And I think recognizing that there's so much cultural change that I think needs to happen within nonprofits. Um, so, for instance, from like the Ontario Nonprofit Network, you'll see that you know 87% of EDs in Ontario and nonprofits are white. And um, there are, in my experience, both anecdotally and from what I've read, I think Black women are deeply 
uh, visible and, and vulnerable sometimes in these systems, right? So through the the gatherings and conversations I've had, I know you know black women who uh, might have been the only black person in a nonprofit who was brought on and within two weeks was let go for not being the right fit without much conversation about that. Um, black women who work in international development and asked questions about you know the lack of racialized leadership and then were penalized for it. So what are the ways in which we're not really willing to have a conversation about that disparity and um, and I'm particularly interested in not having that conversation to, to talk about representation as an end goal but how do we um, talk about it with uh, while creating space for you know people black people indigenous people to have space within the organization to to reinvent to reimagine because I think if we're just talking about representation and that's where we're leaving it I think we're creating a couple of different problems um, we're not we're not adequately creating space for those individuals to succeed because we're not really giving them any space to start to do that really critical reimagining I'm also thinking a lot when regards to the question about decent work the work we value right so I work with a lot of uh, young racialized change leaders who are advancing really important projects and conversations and sometimes that work gets some you know some recognition from particular systems and they get invited to you know whether it's talk to a corporation or an organization or a government body and they're sort of being asked to do this work on a voluntary basis right and then it's like we we wouldn't we wouldn't undervalue or ask somebody I wouldn't ask you to balance my books for free I wouldn't ask you to assess my financial risk for free why would I not value that work in the same way and pay you for your time right and so even with that regard to decent work, both being able to secure the work and then having that work really be meaningfully valued. I think there are a lot of conversations to have, a lot of layers there with regards to decent work and who gets to access decent work. You know, in our work, primarily for the last you know five years of programs, it's about getting people a foot in the door. So you know, getting more black young men and women into the construction sector or into digital technology or into culinary, which is great, but we found increasingly that if you get people in the door, but you don't deal with the anti-black racism that exists in those sectors, if you don't deal with the fact that the conditions make it really hard for anyone, regardless of their skin tone, to make a living or to have a flourishing life in those sectors, then it's not enough. And so I know C as an organization now is stepping into advocacy and consulting consulting with stakeholders, government, about these systems, because decent work is not just about us training young people to survive an increasingly hostile economy. It's also about changing that economy to be more human-focused. It's hard now for social service to always lead the way, because many times we get paid by the same governments and funders that you know are deeply entrenched in this system. And there's that issue about biting the hand that feeds you. But we can say what we can, but we also need the support from community groups or foundations that ha- like Atkinson that have that freedom through their endowment to speak out as well, so that we're speaking as a combined voice to say, you know, we've got plenty of people who want to work in this country who aren't getting the proper opportunity to work, but what we need for them are decent jobs. Just training people for precarious employment, for employment that's dangerous, for employment that is disrespectful, that's racist, that's sexist, Islamophobic, that's not what we need to be in the business of. We need to be in the business of getting people trained to work in a real humane economy that's focused on you know, inclusive growth and sharing the wealth across the country. And so we are here talking broadly about the theme of working working well black and, and how do we uh, change systems in order to make sure that's an equitable, accessible experience that everyone has the opportunity to who identifies that way. 
Who else would you want at the table contributing to this converse conversation because you want to hear more of their voice or from them? You know, the two things that we need to really think about are our tokenism and setting people up for failure. Just because you have that voice, you know, you can be on a board of directors or at a consultation with a government minister. Just because you have two youth at the table doesn't mean that they're actually being taken seriously. Doesn't mean that they even feel comfortable to speak, that they're actually being included in the discussion. You know, many times it feels like you're just a check mark on a box, right? And I've done lots of public consultations where folks with lived experience of marginalization, it feels like they're there to tick off a consultant's box versus to really be heard. And then there's the setting people up for failure, which is, you know, they talk about this idea, there's the glass ceiling, and now they're talking about the glass cliff, where you put racialized people or women in really, really difficult situations. And then it's kind of like, you know, your chances are pretty low. Things fail. And they say, well, that's why we shouldn't put them in that role ever again. And you see that happening. People saying, okay, we're going to solve this diversity issue in the next six months. And let's throw a bunch of people into roles. And let's not invest the time to actually prepare them. Or let's bring them in. And let's not change anything we're doing at all. So, oh, we want lots of black youth working here, but we're not going to change anything about our workplace culture at all to reflect this new diversity. And then suddenly we worry about why won't people stick around? Why are people having trouble performing? Well, you set them up for failure because you thought it was just about, you know, like shifting people on a chessboard, like add more, you know, five more black pawns to this side of the board and suddenly everything will be racial utopia. That's not how it works. Transformation needs all sides actually doing some internal work, searching, seeing what their issues are and being willing to change and learn from each other. And that that takes work, that takes time and that takes money. Right. And many times the people who have the expertise or understanding, as was mentioned, are from community based sector, but they're not respected. To build on that, I feel like I'm in a sector where there is no shortage of, you know, racialized and black women and, and all these individuals who can do this work. And so um, there are people who have those capacities and those skill sets and we're still not even meaningfully you know, engaging them or, or hiring them when we interview them or inviting people to be their full selves because sometimes in particular organizations where we are serving racialized populations, it looks good to have you know, black folks at the table. But if we're not uh, being open to these people exercising their leadership, their ideas, their questions, then we're both isolating, creating a terrible experience for them and not really doing anything meaningful at our organizations, right? So I know this is a really hard question to ask, but if there's one thing that you could change that would make the difference in engaging black communities in the opportunities that you're seeing, what would that be? I think for me, it's the first step and the critical one is recognize that anti-black racism is real. It's not just black people making things up. It's not just exaggerations, that there is a distinct form of discrimination that is experienced by folks of African descent, of course, in varying ways, depending on your shade and depending on your background and the intersection of other parts of your identity. But this thing is real and it manifests in all forms of our society. It does happen in Canada. It's not just an American thing. And we have to be serious about it. That's the starting point from where everything can move forward from. I don't know if it's most disturbing, scariest, worrisome piece of data that I've seen, and it comes from some of the work that Professor Carl James has been doing at York University. And it's about the fact that when it comes to educational outcomes, which is a proxy for all kinds of life success, that the more generations a family, a black family has been in Canada, the worse the outcomes are. 
And that's really worrying because you realize that the problems are not getting better, they're getting worse. These are Canadian issues. And actually, when folks come from their countries of origin and diaspora, they actually have more resiliency and more success. It's the experience of being black in Canada from birth that is the most damaging. These issues we're talking about are creations of this place, of this country, and how we break that cycle, I think, has to be a priority for activists, because otherwise, for all the work we do, you know, things get worse. And I think that's that's one of the scariest uh, kind of realities for me. I think for me, one of the most critical things is we need to stop showing up to community and saying, what are the problems and what do you want us to do? Because there are so many lengthy examples of community consultations that have done that. And I think more organizations need to more readily say, here are the ways that we are, here are the mechanisms and the processes for us to like adapt to what you're asking for. Here are the ways that we can be held accountable. Here, like talk to me more about what your organization is positioned to do and the work and homework you've done, rather than coming to community with what are the problems, uh, what do you want us to do about it? Because so often nobody's acting on those things, and in fact, there is, there are documented so many documented examples of what those answers are. What keeps you in the fight, and what do you do to keep the love alive? I think for me, it's 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 that word. It's love. And, and maybe hope as well. And I think, you know, you see folks who come to this work, who come to activism, social change, and kind of anger at injustice is the fuel that they have going in. And there's many reasons to be angry. And I, we all feel angry about injustice at times. But I found when that is your propellant, when that is your fuel, it burns out pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I've spoken a fair bit about you know spaces where you feel like you're the only one or it feels quite lonely. And I'm sure you've probably experienced a lot of those things as well, whether in academia or a nonprofit. Um, and so I suppose it's the reminder, whether it's spaces you're creating where a lot of people feel like the only one, that you're really not. And so I'd say it's just community. Oh, that's that's a beautiful uh, source of inspiration for the, for the love of the fight. I am going to move to our last segment, which is a segment we call Love or Fight. And I'm going to say a thing, and it's rapid fire. And you tell me whether you love it or you'd fight it. Affirmative action, love it or fight it. Lukewarm love. It needs to be a little more sophisticated to take in class and other pieces that are part of someone's journey. It's complicated. (laughs) I'd say I love it in the sense that, you know, equity is about realizing that we have different needs and different things that have been, you know, given to us for a lack of a better word. And so as a result, you know, need different supports and accesses and pathways. It's a thing that people think is sufficient to creating a more just system, that it alone uh, is some sort of perfect uh, equation. Whereas I feel like there are various things that we need to be considering when we think about some of the things that people have had, you know, given to them or provided for them, depending on their social location and some things that some folks don't get to have access to, that affirmative action is both a um, not uh, deeply understood enough concept and that is also um, not alone going to create some sort of sense of justice. The phrase, fake it till you make it, love or fight? Love it. Love it. Uh, (laughs) Love it. All right. Tell me why you love it. There are ways in which 
you know, particularly I would say uh, black women or racialized women are often, you know, questioned, made to feel like they don't belong at the table or that their credentials or experiences aren't as adequate. And so amongst the the young women I work with, the particularly the young black women, I'm like, it is not your job to tell yourself you are not qualified for something. You are actually incredibly talented and sometimes you won't get an opportunity, but it's not your job to rule yourself out from the start. Yeah, there's a danger to being great talker or great presenter and not being able to deliver. So you have to, delivery is important. But at the same time, folks with privilege in society fake it till they make it all the time. Someone was telling me the other day when I was like, I don't know if I should be speaking on this topic. And they're like, listen, there's plenty of white folks I know who speak on this issue who don't know half of the stuff you do, but don't ask themselves that question. Don't gatekeep themselves before they step into that arena. And so I think for our community, it's important to say, yeah, if fake it till you make it is the mental model that gets you to step up and stand forward, then keep repeating that over and over again. Is there another phrase that's better? Hmm, That's a really good question. I guess like maybe to an extent, Take it till you make it. Like, sort of take those opportunities until, you know, nobody questions you for your, uh, well, not nobody, but you know what I mean, Um, until you are able to not give yourself a second and third thought to going for a thing. (laughs) All right. uh, Our final one is power suits, love or fight. I mean, do you so love it? Yeah, it's one of the best things I've invested in. Um, That's the society we live in. In certain places, it helps open doors and, you know, dressing up to the occasion helps, makes good first impressions. So why not? Awesome. And where can our listeners find each of you and your work? You can find me at at Kofi underscore Hope on Twitter, and you can find the organization on CEToronto.com. I wear a few different hats, and you can find me doing various things uh, on Twitter, Instagram, at Rudana, R-U-D-A-Y-N-A, underscore B. Um, Inspirit Foundation, you can find at Inspirit FDN um, on various social media platforms. That's great. Thank you so much for this. We really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks. I spoke with Hadia Roderick. In her piece, Black on Bay Street, for the Globe and Mail, she wrote, On my way to becoming a lawyer, I learned that success isn't necessarily about merit. It's also about fitting in. As a person of color, that's a roadblock that comes up again and again. She's been a courageous leading voice in the systemic challenges of the combination of anti-Black racism and gender discrimination in the workplace. I spoke with her about her award-winning essay and her current work. And I'm just going to start by asking you to tell me your full name, um, your title or the title that you prefer, and who you work with. Um. My name is Hadia Rodrigue. My title is lowly doctoral student and uh, researcher, speaker, and journalist, going into companies and talking to them about diversity and inclusion, and will be doing some consulting work uh, for a company and perhaps on my own as well. So you've written and spoken really openly and honestly, and in a way that resonated deeply with so many, including myself, about the experience of specifically being a black woman in the world of professional work, and also specifically as a newly minted lawyer on Bay Street. And I wanted to ask you, what compelled you to finally speak out about that experience? I'd always found uh, the interview process, which we call OCI's on-campus interviews, uh, to be very strange considering this is a profession that's considered the upper echelon, the fact that it was mostly cocktail schmoozing and and chit-chat always seemed very odd to me. 
And then I was at a story meeting at the Walrus, and I was telling them about how lawyers got hired, and they all just kind of looked at me dumbfounded, like, seriously, that's what you do to become a lawyer at a big firm? I'm like, yeah, I talked about shoes and hockey, I drank some drinks, I ate some fondue, went to a couple cocktail parties, a dinner, had some lunches, and they just thought it was just so odd that I hadn't been asked any questions about the law or anything substantive or really asked about you know, the qualities that would demonstrate that I'd be a good lawyer and a good student. And so I decided I was going to was gonna write about it. And how did people react? I didn't think I was doing anything remarkable. I thought I was just telling a story about me and my wacky dad. And um, I was just recounting my experience. I'm like, here it is. And I didn't think this was going to be a surprise to any person of color. I didn't think it was going to be a surprise to most people, but it did turn out that it was quite surprising and shocking to a lot of people. Some people don't talk to their their friends of color about their experiences, and 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 sometimes we don't feel comfortable sharing those experiences with our friends because sometimes our friends are the ones who minimize them, or friends who are not people of color. And the reaction was insane. So I was doing a story for the Post on loneliness at the time, and it was on a social media cleanse. So I wasn't supposed to be using social media, but the story came out. You know, and I did. I learned when I got to the newsstand that I was on the cover. They didn't tell me that. And so I tweeted it out and I put it on Facebook. And then I said, I have to, I can't be on here. I'll check back. I'll be back on Monday. And then my phone just started vibrating because someone was at, following me on Twitter like every two seconds. And I went from about 700 followers to 4,000 at the end of the week. My story on Facebook was shared the first week, somewhere around 8,000 times. My video was viewed a quarter of a million times. I got email after email from a lot of people, not just women of color, people of color, white men, a lot of old white men, telling me about how they didn't feel like they belonged on Bay Street either. So, you know, just felt like this was a maybe a problem of the culture as well, that no one actually thinks it belongs and everyone is kind of faking it on Bay Street and why should anyone have to fake it? Um, but I, I didn't get a single racist email, which I consider a small miracle. I got two mansplaining emails from two white guys, but none of the sort of expected right-wing racist vitriol from angry white men. Did and was happen. that the most surprising yeah. thing that you got? I was you shocked because black woman on the internet. I was like, I'm writing about race. People are going to send me hate mail. And now you're a PhD student at the Rotman School of Management, and you're conducting research on workplace social networks, relationships and connection, gender and racial diversity and leadership. Why did you make this your work? I guess there is, you know, making that experience visible and the way that um, it resonated and that people connected to it. But there's a lot of different directions that that can go. Why did you choose this one? Well, the reason I went to grad school is because I looked around at my firm and I was the only black woman in the largest firm in Canada. And I'm like, it's 2012. I feel like this shouldn't be happening. And my firm was doing really well. Um, we had the most number of black partners on Bay Street. We had four. Um, so I went because I thought I could increase diversity more through an academic perspective than I could being one black partner at one firm trying to get more people in the door. So this seemed like the most bang for my buck. What is changing, I guess? Are you seeing change? And, uh, and who is leading the change if it's happening? Well, I'd like to see change in hiring processes. And that's something I don't see out there. So we've known for 15 years 
that black names get fewer callbacks than white names when it comes to submitting resumes. And to get a job at a Bay Street law firm, you submit resumes. That's, that's how it's done. We've known this for 15 years, yet I have not seen a single firm that has corrected for this known bias in their process by using anonymized resumes. And so I'm kind of tired of people sort of asking me to justify why we need inclusion or why we need diversity or, or you know, explain why they need X policy. I'd like to see those companies explain to me why in the face of that research, how they can justify not having anonymized resumes. Um, I think so many times the burden is put on the oppressed person to justify their inclusion or, or to explain how to have more of them, whereas you should be explaining why you are not taking any steps to have more people that look like me. There's a lot of fear, and no one wants to be the first to do anything because they're not sure how it's going to work out. Um, some firms are afraid that the students won't want to apply. I'm like, so wait. In an environment where we have so few articling jobs that we had to create a whole body through the Law Society of Ontario to get people articled, you're worried that people won't apply to your firm if you add in a more fair process. For you, what reason? That it would it would seem too hard. I'm like, do you really want the person who's afraid of a challenge? And also, maybe the fact that your process is more fair would encourage more of the very people you claim to be seeking people of color will apply in greater numbers to your firm because they see the process as, as one that is fair. You're asking everyone the same question, then they have a shot, versus when you're asking about upper middle class pursuits and things that some people might not uh, have access to. I'm just waiting for one firm to kind of be the leader and say, you know what, we're going to standard standardize question process for our, uh, for our interviews and then for everyone else to follow. But someone's got to be the first. Someone's got to be bold enough to be the first. I'm probably going to start lobbying the Law Society to make some of these things mandatory. It would be super easy to add a rule that says you have to anonymize resumes. And so if the law firms won't do it on their own, then it's maybe time for the Law Society to step up and, and demand uh, anonymized resumes and standardized questions. So. It's not easy work, and you've definitely described some of the challenges that you're up against. I want to ask, what keeps you in the fight? What keeps the love alive for you, and what, what feeds you in this effort? I don't want another black female lawyer to have the same experience that I had. It's that simple yeah. and that sincere. Yeah. Well, very cool. Uh, we're going to kind of do a really quick segment with you. We call it Love or Fight. And I'm, I'm going to say a thing, and then you tell me whether you'd love it or you fight it. Okay. Affirmative action, love or fight. Love when applied properly, when people understand what it means, because a lot of people don't understand what it and means. And in your view, what does it mean? It means you have two equal candidates, the person from a unrepresented background should get an edge because that is an advantage that they have over the other individual. The next one is the phrase, fake it till you make it. Love or fight? Fight. Fight. Not willing to fake it anymore. I think I used to, again, worry about fitting in and feeling like I had to act a certain way or be a certain person to be in a relationship or to be in a workplace. And I'm just, it's exhausting and I'm tired. So I have my energy is limited and it has to be focused on the right things and I don't have enough energy to go into pretending to be someone I'm not. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. Power suits. Love them or fight them. Oh, love them. <laughs> Do you have a favorite power suit? I still regret not buying this Prada suit at Century 21 in 2004. 
Like it's it's it haunts me to this day. <laughs> what color it, was it? It was black pinstripe. It was eighty percent off, and I the person I was with was like being annoying while I was shopping and didn't want to like wait till the person came in and unlock the suit for me to try it on. And I still I still have dreams about that suit. I feel like the universe is going to bring it back to you. Yeah. I, I'm really I into feel... Smythe jackets, Canadian Canadian made. Yeah, so I like a, I like a good strong shouldered blazer. And where can our listeners find you and your work? You can find me on Twitter at d rodrigue. That's d e e r o d e r i q u e. I also have a website, hadiarodrigue.com or drodrigue.com, and I host the podcast Commons, produced by Canada Land. And I, you know, I'll write. It'll be out there. That's awesome. Soon. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun and all the best with your continued work. It's really exciting and promising and challenging, we know, but we're also with you. Thank you. Thanks. Black communities are under unbelievable pressure these days. Affordable housing and job prospects are hard to come by for most millennials, but even more so for black workers. Government policies are creating tall barricades, not wide bridges, to the kind of prosperity and opportunity the economy is producing. Redena, Kofi, Hadia, and many other black leaders and their allies are relieving this pressure and removing these barricades here and now. But they're also working on the toxic cultural attitudes about race that produce irrational hatred and competition over generations. The movement for Black Lives has recorded some breathtaking wins and some heartbreaking setbacks. Each generation is in the arena for a few rounds before making way for the next. The important question that we must ask ourselves is, what will the next generation inherit from us? Hate or love? Thanks for listening. Lovers and Fighters is produced by Vocal Fry Studios and hosted by me, Asma Malik, with additional support from Nora Cole. You can find our show notes at atkinsonfoundation.ca slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at AtkinsonCF and on Instagram at JustWorkIt underscore. Subscribe to our Just Work It platform on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. And your positive ratings and comments ensure that other people can find us too. We love hearing from you. Get in touch with us on social media or at justworkit at atkinsonfoundation.ca.